this opportunity to, to share with you, to talk to gain and to stir up in ourselves our faith in God, our knowledge of God. Tonight I'm going to have a, a time where I want us to consider again some of the things that we already know. If you're a believer, nothing tonight I'm going to say is going to be new, but it's good for us to be reminded of these things. It reminds me of the story my dad's famously said about the person who went into a coffee shop and got a coffee. And he said to the waitress, I'll have a sugar. So she puts a sugar in it. And then what happens is he tastes the coffee and he goes, I'll have another sugar, puts another sugar in it, tastes the coffee. It's not sweet enough, another sugar. And after a few times, the, the waitress says, excuse me, you just need to stir up what's already in there. You just need to stir it up. So that's what my aim is tonight, to come together to consider again some of the truths that we already know, some things that we are already aware of. I was thinking about this message, and I was reminded of a story as well. There was the senior citizens, uh, husband and wife. The wife was listening to the radio, and she heard about this lunatic who was driving down the motorway, and all the cars were having accidents all over the show. There was a pileup, and she was really worried about her husband because it just happened to be somewhere that he was going. So she picks up the phone, and she calls him on his hands free, and she says to him, be careful, be careful. There's some lunatic going down the motorway the wrong way. And, she, and he replies to her, there's not just one, there's hundreds of them. <laughs> See, Sharon always says, never open with a joke. But <laughs> sometimes you get a good one. That was a good pastor joke, though. You know, in this day and age, there's a multiplicity of ways in which we can interpret what someone says. There's a multitude of ways when you get a text, when you read it, you can go, Oh, is that an aggressive text? Is that a friendly text? Is that an encouraging text? Or is that an angry, bitter text? Same with Facebook messages, same with emails, same with so much stuff in this world. You find that the world itself has taken everything and has boiled it down and now looks at books, looks at writing, and it no longer asks, what did the original author mean? It now asks, what does this mean to me? And they take their morals and their values and their way of looking at the world and they transplant it onto the text and they take the meaning and it's no longer in the hand of the man with a pen it's now in the hand of the person reading and that happens so so often in our world especially when our amongst many churches sadly to say many of them take the text and they take it out of context and they try to plant transplant onto that their own values and their own society and their own culture. And it's a very dangerous road to go down. You can see it often sometimes whenever you watch some historical movies. You watch them and you, you, you read, you're watching it and you're going like, oh, this is going to be a good movie. I'm not going to mention the one I, mentioned, I was thinking of, but I was going like, this is going to be a great movie. And next thing you know, the movie is totally different. The people are a lot more filled with things that we're filled with. They're a lot more materialistic than what they might have been in those days, although I'm sure they were. They're a lot more carnal. They're a lot more full of lust and pride and jealousy and things like that, which have always existed, but it's heightened. And that's the way, that's the way things work. They reduce history down and books down and literature down to our point of view and then sort of go from there. We live in an age that is marked by cynicism, skepticism, doubt, 
I had a conversation with a gentleman in my work this, not this past week, a few weeks ago, in which he turned around and he, we were talking about history and about past. And he said to me, you know, we really can't know the past. This is a typical liberal, postmodern way of looking at things. We can't really know the past. You've all heard the phrase, the history is written by victors. So you can't really trust it because it's not fair. So I'll have to do and I'll have to read between the lines and invent it again. So often it happens. They can't trust anything. They're skeptical. They doubt. And they're cynics. But as believers, we come, at the, we come to the scripture certainly from a different point of view. We have a book which could, you could argue, you know, over 40, 40 different authors, 66 different books written over 1,500 years. You could argue that, you know, do they all have a, you know, what was their agenda? You, know, you could argue that. But there's a spirit to the text. There's a theme, there's a thread that goes throughout them. They're in perfect harmony with one another. And that's a thing this world will never understand. At the heart of the things that they'll never understand is the person of Jesus Christ. They'll never understand them. Because they reduce them down to their moral values, to their way of looking at things. And they try to transplant on it again their opinions of things. You know, we have become familiar with it. But again, as I said, I want us to consider again in the book of John, there is eight I am's of Christ. I do not have eight points tonight. But I just the eight I am's were, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Consider again that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Really, I looked at that one, and that's the one I'm going to speak on tonight. It's the crown of them all. It sums them all up. Because in, contained in that one verse and that one idea is the totality of who Jesus is. So we'll read that if you can. Just turn in our Bibles to John chapter 14. I love the book of John because he's got such a grand scale, a grand view of the world and a grand view of God. He's got a grip on something eternal. He's got a grip on the person of Jesus. So John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither ye go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And verse 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Praise the Lord. You know, you have to admire Thomas. You know I, know, I know he gets a bad press, he's the doubter, but you know, he had the courage to say, the courage to speak up whenever he had doubts, when he had thoughts, things that he was, wasn't happy about, he had the courage to say it, rather than just let it fester, rather than to let it fester to become something that became poisonous to him. But he had the courage to ask the question, Lord, we don't understand. What do you mean? 
And Jesus, as a great teacher, doesn't answer the way I probably would have answered. Have you not been listening? He didn't. He teased it out of him. You know, he encouraged him. That's what a good teacher does. He doesn't knock him down. You've missed the point. He doesn't do that. Instead, he just he encourages them. It reminds you of Christ on the road to Emmaus when he met the two disciples. Remember that he came alongside with them and he started to ask them what was happening in the city, what's happening. He already knew. And he started to tease out of them things and then he started to open the scriptures to them. And here Christ, as the great teacher, is teasing out of his disciples a truth that they should already know, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. This passage falls right after the point where the previous verse where he's just told Judas, you're going to betray me, you may as well go and get it done. Go, go quickly. And then he opens the disciples and it says he teaches them one last love one another. What a, what a teacher. What a Christ. So today we're going to look at Jesus as the way. You know, it's important that we as believers have a grip on this. Remember Jesus asked the disciples, who do they say I am? And he says, who do you say that I am? The world out there has got a multitude of answers for that question. A multitude of excuses, really. Who is he? So he said that he is the way. It's a huge claim. I am the way. He made some great claims, amazing claims. Claims that if they weren't true would really get him locked up in this day and age. You know, do we consider that we have chosen a way? The Buddhist has chosen a way. The Hindu has chosen a way. The Muslim, the secular person who has no idea about things eternal, has still chosen a way. In the Greeks and Romans in their day, they would have called us the atheists because we didn't believe in the gods that they believed in. We didn't believe in Zeus and all the rest of them. Just flew out of my mind there. In our day and age, God and the things of God are no longer talked about in our schools. I was listening to a guy talking recently about Muslims and in the Muslim faith and about the, 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 them building these schools. And they, in each school, they build a prayer room so that they can have their time of prayer. It's not in our schools. People have no knowledge of the things future. This past week, we've seen the school, the, the faith school, the Christian faith school in England being persecuted for not telling people about the validity of other ways. These are difficult times in many ways for believers. They can accept many things, but they can't accept Jesus as exclusive. But the problem is, it's only a liberal mindset that thinks that Jesus isn't, is exclusive. They think, oh, you're too exclusive. Jesus really wasn't that way. It's only you Christians but the truth is that all religions are exclusive. All of them are exclusive. Gautama Buddha, who started Buddhism, was a Hindu. And he thought Hinduism was too, too strict. He didn't like the caste system. He didn't like the power of the Vedas. So he left that and he started Hinduism. Or he started Buddhism. And you can't be a Buddha unless you believe in reincarnation and karma. He actually came to the point where he called his own son Raul. Which means obstacle. Because he's seen his son as an obstacle to enlightenment and to purging himself of desire. They're all exclusive. Islam's very exclusive. Very aware of that in this day and age. Atheism's exclusive. Can't be a Christian and an atheist. They'll tell you that. But Jesus is the way. Isn't it funny whenever you go to the airport, they have a, 
prayer room with all the prayer, all the religions all listed out there. Because to the liberal mindset, to the atheist mindset, they're all the same. At best, on the edges, on the peripheries, there's a similarity. But fundamentally, there is a mile of the difference. In 1977, there was a movie, an irreverent movie, with George Burns in it. And he played God in this movie. And he was asked in the movie if Jesus was his son. And he says Jesus was his son. And Buddha was his son. And Muhammad was his son. And in fact, all human beings are his sons and daughters. And since he created them all. The liberal mindset is willing to just put everyone together. Put all faiths together and say there's no difference. They cannot accept Christ as an exclusive way to heaven. They take the meanings and they change them. There's a well-known newspaper called the Huffington Post. I'm sure some of you have heard of it. It's a very liberal newspaper. And I'm going to read this article. It's just this short passage. It says, Today I realize that what Jesus was saying, really saying, is this. I am the way, as in I know the way, as in I've discovered it, which by implication means you can too. Elsewhere, he puts it like this, I and the Father are one, and he prayed that we would discover the same as well, which is precisely why he said continually, follow me. In other words, it's as if Jesus was saying, if you believe anything, believe not words, but the way of life itself. My way, like many other ways, will guide you into eternal life. In fact, you cannot separate the way to God from God herself. The way to God is God. See, if you didn't have a good grip on Jesus as the way, and you hear that, you might be going along at one point going, yes, I agree with that. That's okay. I can accept that. I can accept that. But do you see how they changed it at the end? It wasn't about getting away to God, to God herself. We have to consider these things and be aware of them because the liberal mindset will wash over us. When we hear it in the TV, we hear it in the news, we hear it in conversations, very often in conversations. But God doesn't get drawn into these things. We have to be careful with these wishy-washy ideas. They did a survey a few years ago amongst Christians. Now, granted, it was in America. And 52% of American Christians believed that there was more than one way to Christ. There's more than one way to heaven, sorry. 52% believed that all religions had some sort of valid claim. That is horrendous. If it wasn't for the fact Jesus rose from the dead, he would turn over in his grave. Really? 52%? Now, that was a few years ago. And, you know, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, maybe that's just America. You know, they're very, very accepting. There's such a lot of multiculturalism. But do you think we're, too, we're far away from that ourselves? Do you think the UK is far from that? Not at all. How come you Christians are so negative about everyone else? That's liberals saying it. Not other religions saying it. Or other religions are saying it. You're being true to your, your teachings. There's this new movement. It's been going for a few years now in America. Chrislam. 
where they bring Christianity and Islam together. It's a very, very dangerous mix. They're totally incompatible, but this is the thing. We have to consider these things, be aware of these things. His exclusive claims that I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have to be aware of these claims. You know, they are happy to accept Christ and water him down. They're happy to accept his moral teachings. They're happy to accept those things that he does for the emancipation of mankind, for our betterment, for our values, for our society. They're happy to accept those things, but they can't accept Christ as a strong, powerful God. They can't accept him as the exclusive way to heaven. They want to wash him down, make him flimsy, make him, make him a, a shadow of who he really is. And you know, it's terrible. It, it really, we should be, you know, we, if you know the way, you know, that should really rub you up the wrong way. They cannot grasp Jesus. They're happy with the, the flimsy Jesus. Why do you think that they get so excited every time a new Gnostic gospel comes out or a new movie that promotes Jesus as this or that and, you know, his desires and, and you know, oh, he really wanted to get married or maybe he really did get married. You know, realistically, really, I, I have to scratch my head when I hear those things. I have to scratch my head and say, really? This is Jesus, the Son of God, who's come from heaven, the place of total perfection. And you really think that he wants to, to get a shack in Bethany and settle down? Do you really think so? He's come down to this earth where he's had nothing but hardship and trouble, where he's had people persecute him, where he's had people comment at him, who's people who criticize him and question him at every turn. Do you think he's going to give up heaven, the place where it's perfect peace? the place of perfect happiness, the place of perfect agreement with the Father, communion. The people, this, this world doesn't know what they're talking about. If they think Jesus would settle for something so, so, so much less than what he was born with. They want a weak, they want a weak Christ, a weak way to heaven. They want something that, let's water it all down and we'll all accept it and it'll be okay. But I can tell you that's not the way it is. In Philippians 2, 6, 6 to 11, it says, it says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He thought it not robbery to be considered equal with God. It doesn't sound like someone who's, who's just a pushover. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he talks about, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before the foundation of the world. He's not just a, just a man. He's not just someone that can be taken for granted. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, and you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, no, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. His, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He came to make a claim, a bold claim. I am the way. This world can't handle that. They don't like that idea. You're being too hard. You're being too narrow-minded. But we were called to follow the, to go on the no, narrow path. 
to go the narrow way. You know, Jesus didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom as they understand. When they try to reason with him and try to think about him and try and put him into their box, they try to think of things in the way that they think of things. They try to think of power and authority in the way that they think of power and authority. If, you know, Jesus, when he fed the, the, fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, you know, he could have started off. He's got a good, that's a good launch pad there. I've got people now, they're, you know, a bit dependent on me. I've met some fleshly desire of theirs. Now they're going to follow along. The devil took them up and showed them the the stones. He said, turn these stones into bread. I could turn stones into bread. I'll I'll satisfy some fleshly desire. I'll get them to follow me. The problem is, though, if he had started that way, you'd have to fulfill another fleshly desire and then another fleshly desire. And then sooner or later, someone might come along who can do it even better. See, they don't understand that he didn't come to set up a kingdom in the way that they understand it. He didn't come along and, and sort of cry out, this is now the kingdom of Israel. Let's, let's set out and we'll kick out the Romans. Remember Peter in the garden pulled out the sword? Jesus said, that's not the way. Before Pilate, Pilate said, are you a king? And he said, yes, I'm a king, but I'm not here of the kingdom of this world. Because he came to do a bigger work. He came to do a a more powerful work, something that would last an awful lot longer, something that would have a permanent impact on the lives of men and women. If man had his way, the plan of redemption would be an endless and bloody conflict. In reality, salvation was bought not by Jesus' fists, but by his nail-pierced hands, not by his muscle, but by love, not by vengeance, but by forgiveness, not by force, but by sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our Lord, surrendered in order that he might win. He destroyed his enemies by dying for them and conquered death by allowing death to conquer him. A.W. Tozer. See, man doesn't understand that. They can't get a grip on it. And as believers, it's important that we have a grip on it, that we consider again that he is the way. He's very clear on it. It's like we have to elevate him in our minds and have elevate him in our hearts. You know, that's what praise and worship is. It's, yes, it's singing and things like that there, but sometimes it's elevating him in here, praising him in here, praising him in here, making him bigger, make, giving him his rightful place. You know, those ideas that he is just this or he is just that. They hold no water when compared to the light of Scripture. He now came to come to raise an army. You know, if someone was to come up to me and say to me, for example, Jamie there, say to me, I am God. Now, I know he looks like it and he, he feels like it sometimes, but he was to come up and say to me, I am God, I would, I'd go, I don't think so, Jamie. You need to cut down on some of those things you're taking and go sit in a quiet corner. But you know what? If, if, if he started doing miracles, if he started raising the dead, if he started you know, healing people, if he was killed and rose from the dead himself, I'd have to really seriously consider what he said. <laughs> and the thing is that many people never consider Jesus. The atheists and the liberals out there, the, the secular people out there, they've never considered Jesus. They've never sat to, to read the scriptures. This is the most important man in history. This man has done more for mankind than any other man. If we leave out the spiritual aspect, look at the impact he's had on nations, on countries. I can remember a few years ago, my dad had a, a, an outreach up in Antrim. And uh, you know, young men were coming to, to Christ. 
And it was a case of they were actually, you know, they, were, they used to be the type of guys who'd go to their parents and family and friends, what do you want for Christmas, and have a big list, and then go out and start stealing the stuff. But there was a change made in them. There was a transformation. Jesus came and made some audacious claims. I am the way. In Acts 4, it says that there, and there, is no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved. It's important that we are aware of these things. He didn't come to just be a moral teacher and teach a moral message. He came to change men's and women's lives. And as believers, he has come into our hearts and into our lives, and he has made a change. The idea of Jesus as a charlatan, as an intentional deceiver who claimed to be something he knew he was not, has never had much appeal, even among fanatical anti-religionists. Jesus' high ethical teachings and noble personal character have made such an interpretation extremely improbable. He didn't just come to be a moral teacher. He didn't just come to be, give people a, you know, let's all look at the world a different way. He didn't do that. Because he didn't raise a battle standard. He didn't come along and create a throne. See, in our minds, rules and regulations are needed. Authority, you know, the, the Muslim, the word Muslim and Islam comes from the same root, which is all about submission to the will of Allah. It's all about submission and it's about hard lines and bringing things in. And there is a certain amount of, you know, control in, in, in following Christ. But there's freedom. There's a change of heart. He does something in here that has an effect in our world. See, the world looks at us and goes, right, whatever you do, that's who you are. But the scriptures teach us that who we are is what we do. It's a different way of looking at things. The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. He's done more to change people's lives, to change society than anyone else because he does a heart surgery on all of us. I heard there not too long ago a story about uh, Angola prison in Mississippi. And it, a number of years ago, it used to be one of the dangerous and one of the most bloodiest prisons in America. It was a prison in which they would give inmates a knife as they entered because they knew that it was so dangerous in here, you're probably going to get killed unless you've got a way of protecting yourselves. A number of years ago, a, a new warden took over who was a Christian and he went, that's it, we have to change something. And he took all the knives out and he put the Bibles in. There's now over 90 Christians in that prison who are in Bible school. And they are doing is they're reaching out to the rest of the inmates. See, he didn't come to just create a fleshly world of rules and regulations. He came to change our hearts. Those 90 odd students in that Bible college, they're never going to go out and reach the world. They've got life sentences, majority of them. So they're there to reach the other inmates. They've chosen a way and it has had an effect on their lives. It has an effect on their society as it had an effect on those around them. Do you consider today that you have chosen a way? That you have made a choice, a decision? 
The life of Jesus is an amazing life. His message is an amazing message. He has, he has changed us. We, you know, they can accept his morality and his teachings, but not his divinity. But his divinity is the thing that makes it the difference. He was born, this is another, this is a great, this is one big quote. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from where he was born. He did none of the things we usually associate with greatness. He did none of those things. 19 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. He's changed us. He's had an effect you know, we look at this world and we look at things that are happening in the news and you can get that whole fear building up in you, that apprehension about the, the future. But you know what? He's still the God who changes people. He's still the God who does miraculous things. He still saves souls. Jesus said in the John 10, he says, I am the door. I am the door. I am the way. There's a, a definite article there. I am the door. I am the way. You know, I was thinking about when I was thinking on this scripture, I was thinking about the Old Testament and the tabernacle in the wilderness. When you think about it, there was one door in. There is one way. You came in and the first piece of furniture you came to was the brazen altar, the place of sacrifice. All of the Jewish listeners here in Jesus, maybe some of them thought of that, that he is the door. He is the way. You know, whenever we're going through things, we look sometimes look at our circumstances and we want a circumstantial victory. But if you have Jesus in your life, you have the victory. I can even go further. If you have Jesus in your life, you have salvation. You have the way. See, the way isn't a set of things to do. It's a person. He is at the heart of the gospel. He is at the heart of the message. He actually told us in the scriptures that he was a stumbling block. And it really doesn't take much looking around us to see that he is to many people. But it's important for us that we elevate him in our minds and that we realize, you know what? When I came to Christ, I just didn't come to him in a moment of, of personal catastrophe for a short, quick fix. I didn't just come to him to make a decision for one day. I came to make for a, a decision for him for every day. I give my life to him, not just my every other day or my once a week day. He said he was the way and he is the truth. Truth by definition means that there is untruth. Truth by definition means that anything that is counter to that truth 
is a lie? Have you considered that? It's a hard message. Can we think to ourselves, at least in our own hearts, or in our privacy of our own minds, that anything that's counter to the scriptures and counter to what God has said and Jesus and who he is is not true? Can't voice it sometimes. And if you do, you'll be lambasted and slammed and accused of all sorts of things. But there is by clear implication a, a connection between truth and lie, between falsehood and truth. See, this world doesn't want to have any parameters. They don't want to have truth. They don't want to have absolute truth. They would rather have everything's happy and we can just go on with your life. Whatever's true for you is true for you. And whatever's true for me is true for me. I was talking to again to another guy in my work recently. And we were talking about this very subject, this idea of truth and absolutes. And we were talking about words and the meanings of words. And we were talking about some old words that have different meanings in this day and age. And we were bantering back and forward with a few of them. And then he made a comment which because of its philosophical depth, shocked me coming from him. But he turned and he says, yes, words don't mean what they used to because we invest them with meaning. We invest the words with meaning. That's what he said. Which everyone goes, that's okay. I can understand that. But if we invest the word with meaning, then we take the meaning of the word and we change it. problem with Jesus, the, the liberal mindset can't accept that, that he enunciates very clearly what is wrong with mankind. He's very clear on what our problem is and where we need to change. He's very clear on the propensity of mankind towards sinfulness, towards evil, towards the wrong. He's very clear on that. But when I was thinking about the truth, I was also thinking about the propensity in ourselves have you ever driven past a police car have you ever been driving down the road and maybe on the slow lane the police car is driving and you've had the opportunity to overtake he's only doing 50 and it's the motorway you can do 70 have you ever had that moment where you go oh will I overtake or will I not you know you, you get apprehensive you know you start to think are all my lights on you know am I gonna is my speedometer actually working here don't we feel that way sometimes when it comes to God? Come to church, oh, he's going to see, he's going to know, he's going he's to jump on me. But the truth is that Jesus came to testify. I have come to testify of the truth. He said, I am the way, the way to God. And the truth is he didn't come to jump on us. He doesn't sit waiting, waiting for us to stumble and fall. He doesn't sit, you know, we can get this idea that, that he's just waiting to judge us. You know, he's coming back as the judge of all the earth and he's going to just let us have it. He's going to, you know, we, we could have, you know, we could have prayed more. You know, I guarantee you, no one's going to say, I wish I was on, on, on Facebook more or I wish I watched more TV. I guarantee it. But you'll all be sitting thinking, I wish I prayed more. I wish I, I was in church more. I wish I read the Bible more. I wish I talked to more people more. I guarantee you, no one's ever going to wish whenever they're standing before God that they wished, oh, I wish I was less sincere. I get you. We wish we're more sincere because these are eternal matters we're talking about. 
But he's not waiting for us to fall. He's not waiting for us to stumble. He's not waiting for, if we've stumbled and fall, he, he hasn't, he's not waiting to go, gotcha. He's not waiting. He's not like that. It's not his desire for us to fail. It's his desire for us to succeed. Just as I was saying there, he was the gracious teacher. Yes, he doesn't want us to fall, and we shouldn't. But he's not waiting for us to fall. He is the gracious teacher. He is our Lord and Savior. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. See, he's not willing that any should perish. The truth is he's not here to jump on us. He's not waiting just to judge us and to punish us. He's here to pour out his love and tell us that he loves us, that he has given us the way, that he is the way. He stands with us in solidarity. He came and lived in the flesh. He was born as a child, raised as we were, with all that that entails. He spent his times with sinners and was identified with sinners. And then he went and he was baptized. And at that moment, at that moment of identification, his father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. See, his mission isn't to punish. His mission is to extend the hand of grace, extend the hand of mercy. You know, I was thinking of this, this song today. I'm not going to sing it. I was singing it earlier. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. What a way, what a truth, what a Christ. Praise the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to know him tonight? Isn't it wonderful to have the way and the truth? To know that no matter what happens around us in our circumstances, in our world, in our society, that we can hold on to the fact that we have the way, the truth, and the life. He has never changed. Jesus is God, spelling himself out in a language that men can understand. They don't want to understand them. They can't understand them. They've blinded themselves with the sin and corruption of this world. But he came and he changed the focus. He changed everything. He is the life. Life spoken of here is obviously uh, spiritual life. But he is originally the, the author of all life in the beginning. The plan of God was not just to save us and take us out, but the plan of God was to get the life of God into this world. That's our mission. We now then, as, as light bearers, as they say, is to go take that light into this world. We change the, the climate of the circumstances around us. We change the climate in our work environments. We change the climate in our families. We have the opportunity to respond in a godly way. We don't always have to respond in a carnal way. We don't always have to come out with that quick quip, with a come, the comeback. It's our opportunities, though, to go with life of God and take another message. Instead of a message of judgment, a message of life, a message of forgiveness. This message changes lives. He came and he rearranged us. He sorted us out. You know, with body, mind, 
and spirit, or body, soul, and spirit. He put the spirit, soul, and body. We're no longer subject to the same things. He came and he broke the power of sin. He hasn't broken the presence of sin, but he's broken the power of sin over us. He's came and gave us life, something that lifts us and elevates us, gives us a chance. Baxter wrote this. He says, fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He came not merely to preach a gospel. He said that he is that gospel. It's, he did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to, to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can go to the Father but by him. Again, looking back at the Old Testament in the tabernacle, the way was coming in through past the brazen altar, the place of sacrifice. And if you remember, what was the next place you came to? It was the holy place where they had the menorah, the table of showbread, and the table of incense, the altar of incense, which spoke of our service and our relationship. It spoke of our praise and our worship to God. And what was the last place? It was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the life of God, the way, the truth, and the life, the very presence of God, where the Shekinah presence dwells. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, it's not just amazing that there is a way to God, that he is the way. It's not just amazing that the message is not just amazing, but the fact that there is the opportunity, that there is a way. It's not just amazing that we can come up with some sort of system, but the fact that there is a way, that he's opened that opportunity. Because he could easily have said, sinners, all judged. But he made a way, and he is that way. What a God. What a message. I hope tonight we've considered that again. Consider him again in your life. Consider him again as your way, truth, and life. The way, the truth, and the life. Not just merely an option, but there is no other way. He's very clear on that. The way. Whatever you're going through tonight, whatever circumstances you face, he is the way, the truth, and the life. If you have a foundation and of that in your heart, if you have a foundation of that in your life and in your mind, you can face whatever comes. You can face whatever storms are out there this week. You know, no matter what happens in my job and in my family and my circumstances, I can go on because I know that he is the way for me. He is the truth for me and he is the life and he's the truth for you. Amen. He's the way for you. You know, the most sung song at funerals in this day and age is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. We had it on in my work this week and it just reminded me of that. I Did It My Way. What a sad, sad song. What a sad song. We can do it our way or we can do it his way. Father God in heaven, Lord, we praise you, Lord. We thank you, dear God in heaven, for sending your son. We thank you for the life that you led in, on this earth. We thank you for the door that you opened, Lord. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that your deposit of grace in us, your deposit of life in us, Lord, has given us eternity, Lord. We just praise you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your hand in our lives. We thank you for leading us and protecting us, Lord, for guiding us and strengthening us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for helping us this week to be your light in this world, Lord, to take the message that you are our God, that you are the way, and that the offer of grace still extends to man. Lord, we just want to praise you and glorify you. We thank you, Lord, for this night. We thank you for this word. Amen. Amen.